Good morning. It's good to see you. Um, man, like I just a, a quick note about uh, our our songs and our song selection and our service flow in the morning. You might have felt right at the very beginning just some of the weight um, to these songs. There's there's theological depth behind these lyrics, and every single week in the planning process behind the scenes, we're we're trying to arrange our gatherings in such a way that they're 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 aligning. So the songs aren't disconnected from the sermon. Communion is not disconnected from the sermon. It's all uh, a part of a a flow that we want to put before you, so that we can feel the weight, we can feel the emotion, uh, we can tune in to what the Spirit of God is doing among us. So just pay attention to the prayers. Pay attention to the songs. Pray, pay attention to the call to worship. Pay attention to the benediction at the end when we send. Pay attention to that service flow in the mornings. I think that uh, as you do, you, you'll start to make sense of it and understand that there is a lot more going on here than just a welcome and some songs and a message, and then we go on our way for another week. Um, Last week when I uh, was preaching, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it at length, but I left some things really unclear um, on topics of gender and sexuality. And I, it, was, um, it was a fog up here in my mind as I'm just pastoring and trying to give a pastoral word, but it ended up being a mist among you. So if you have not tuned into the podcast or you're not a part of our church communication um, kind of chain, um, I just want you to know that I've added some clarifications and some addendums to the message last week to try to bring clarity to what I said that was very, very, very unclear. So I want to apologize and at the same time let you know that you can get the clarification that you need on Spotify or iTunes or our website on the, on the the podcast there. So like Larry said, this morning we're talking about um, the fall. We're talking about, that, that is what theologians call this moment in scripture. Uh, and it is a heartbreaking moment. And I think all of us, well, I know all of us, we feel the effects of it. And so a question underneath all of the questions that we're asking on a regular basis is, why is our world so dysfunctional? What in the world? Like, some things go right, but it seems like so much in our world, in our families, in our realities is just off the rails. And it's not just the religious crowd asking these questions. It's everyone that that has come to a certain age that's beginning to wrestle with hurt and pain and grief and wickedness in the world. And we're asking, man, I, I have a sense that it shouldn't be like this, and yet this is my lived and experienced reality. Um, young and old took to the streets in 2020 to air their grievances. The conversation was primarily centered around issues of race and ethnicity, and they, and they were saying that something is wrong with the way that people treat other people in our world. There are other things going on behind the scenes too, for sure. And those very same, some of those very same folks ended up hurting other people in the streets, whether it be police officers or whether it be other civilians or protesters or people on the other side of the ideological paradigm. And it's like something is wrong the way, for the way that, with the way that we treat each other, and yet I'm going to mistreat 
you as well. We just see that people have a really difficult time getting along, right? If you lived and grew up in the 90s, why can't we all just get along? Russia and Ukraine, right? There's a buildup of military forces on the border of Russia. It's in our, or of the Ukraine rather, and it's in our news feeds like crazy. Um, I'm going to touch a nerve here, but Republicans and Democrats, we have come to a place where we view ourselves more as political enemies than we do as siblings in one nation. One nation under God with liberty and justice for those who agree with me. It's not what it says. With liberty and justice for all. This is a micro case study in human dysfunction. Micro case study, right? To, and, and, and here's the thing. Every one of us has contributed. Every one of us has contributed to the dysfunction in the world around us. And if you don't see it, I could probably show it to you in a half an hour conversation. And so can your friends and so can your family, the people that know you and are close to you. Um, every conflict, church, involves at least two parties. Every conflict. At least two parties, multiple sides. Something's obviously wrong in our world, is it not? We feel it. But it didn't begin that way. This is not how creation began. Two weeks ago, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything in its proper order. Well, he didn't create it two weeks ago. Sorry, I just caught up with my own thoughts. It was a little older than that. Um, last Two weeks ago, we covered this topic, right? Um, Speaking of that, if you need a study guide, if you're just here with us this morning, look at Trevor in the back. He's got a study guide that will take you through. Oh, he's even dancing a little bit. Um, There's a study guide that is meant to help you kind of follow the train of thought that we are covering over the next couple of months together as we're tracing the whole story of the scriptures. Anybody else need one? Put a hand up if you need one. He'll bring it right over to you. Special delivery. All right, two weeks ago, we covered creation. And creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything is in its proper place. Everything's functioning as it is supposed to be functioning, exactly as specified by the designer himself, God. And then last week, we took a look at, it was a high view, but we took a look at how God created humanity to be his images and to spread his glory to the far reaches of his creation kingdom. Humanity, we occupy the most glorious seat in creation's order. And everything is hunky-dory until chapter 3 in the book with 1,189 chapters. (laughs) Two chapters, it's good. 1,187 chapters it takes to explain what has gone wrong and what God is doing about it in the world. The scriptures take up a tremendous amount of word count and of language trying to explain what we all feel and what we all experience in our functional worlds. And so the story of God, biblical theology, that's what this series is about. It explains our functional, dysfunctional world. We're using a device to kind of remember the gospel story, and they're in these study guides, and it's called The Story So Far. There will be a slide up on the screen. And so two weeks ago, the sentence was, God created a kingdom, and he is the king. 
And then last week we added on to that sentence, but he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom, period. This week, Adam and Eve, our first parents in the garden, rejected this call. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're, we're going to tune into that story in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. So if you've got your Bibles, I hope you do, turn in the scriptures or on your phone, however you're reading the scriptures, turn to Genesis chapters 2 and 3. We're going to read all of this long form together, and then what I'm going to do is highlight a few big picture aspects during the remainder of our time. I have asked four people to come up, three people to come up. I'm, I'm one of the fourth, or I am the fourth, to come up and to read these for us, just as a way that we can devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, which the Apostle Paul admonishes Timothy to give himself to in the pastoral letters. And so you're going to get to hear from other members of your church family. If you're a reader, would you come up and just stand with me? They're just going to be here. They're going to go one after the other, and I'm going to kick it off this morning. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Go ahead and come up and just stand right next to me. You don't, have to, you don't have to be shy. You're going next, Connor. Meet Connor Nolan. Give him a hand, everybody. He's brave. His dad's going to help him out with the microphone. Jeremy Stevens and Deanna Elmer as well. This is God's word in Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens, the the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water this garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God put the man in the Garden of Eden. He put him there to farm its land and take care of it. The Lord God gave the man a command. He said, you may eat fruit from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. The Lord God had formed all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he had made all of them out of the ground. He brought them up to the man to see what names he would give them. And the name the man gave each living creature became its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. 
But Adam didn't find a helper that was just right for him. So the Lord God caused him to fall into a deep sleep. While the man was sleeping, the Lord God took one of the man's rib. Then the Lord God closed the opening in the man's side. Then the Lord made a woman. Her, He made her from the rib he had taken out of the man. The Lord God brought her to the man, and the man said, Her bones have come from my bones. Her body has come from my body. She will be named woman because she was t- taken out of man. That's why a man lives his fa- leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The two of them become one. Adam and his wife were both naked. They didn't feel any shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat any of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread." Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. 
Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil, and to now, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the end, at the east of the garden of Eden, and flaming sword which turned every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Thanks, Deanna. As we tune into this story, the the biblical story, Genesis chapters. One, two, and three, they explain our functional, dysfunctional world. Some things are still going all right. That's the functional piece of it. And other things are astray. And we can, we can feel that. That's the dysfunctional piece of it. Genesis 1 through 3 has been uh, the subject of intense learning, intense study for ages, literally for thousands of years, scrutiny. Um, incredible minds have uh, minds have tried to mine its its depth, and here's here's some of the question that I've been I've been wrestling with this last week. Like, but how many of us like these chapters are resigned to day one of our Bible reading plan? And like somewhere back in January, I read this and I, and I moved on for it. And yet, like what Genesis chapter one through three is actually doing in the scriptures is setting up the trajectory of the rest of the Bible. It's setting themes. And there is an abundance of themes in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to name a few of those themes, large and small. And I did this on week one, and I did it a little bit last week too. I just want you to to see and to pick up over time the, the abundance of what is going on just in these short chapters. We see in Genesis 1 through 3 the intense power and goodness and gloriousness and the creativity of God. We also see the God-endowed glory of humanity in these opening chapters. We see something we may regard as small, but every day we don't regard it as small, the necessity of food as God's provision to us. God has provided for his people and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the oceans as well. Like We learn something about beasts and insects. We learn something about the heavenly bodies, the host of heaven, the Bible calls them, the stars, the moon, the sun. We learn in Genesis 1 through 3, about land masses and about bodies of water. We see in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 that work is a blessing from God. Work did not come at the fall. Work came before the fall, before the wheels fell off. It is a blessing from God. The fact that it produces frustrations every day for you and I is a result of the fall. But God blessed our work. He blessed our labor. He means for us to put our hands to good things and to produce and to cultivate. There's a love song. We just read it in here. As Adam is, he sees his wife for the very first time, at last, from my bones and from my flesh, you've given me a woman. We see the interdependent design of men and women in the scriptures in one through three. We see, um, we see marriage. Marriage is presented to us for the very first time in Genesis chapter two. We also see the importance of separating from mom and dad when we do get married. 
how the new family begins. We see themes of obedience. We see themes of faithfulness. We see themes of faithlessness. We see kind of the unholy trinity of shame, guilt, and fear. In Genesis 1 through 3, we see we, we are confronted with hiding, blame, sin, atonement. That is the covering of sin. As God covers Adam and Eve, he clothes them with the skin of animals. That's foreshadowing something that will come throughout the law and ultimately in Jesus Christ. And something else that we see in Genesis 1 through 3 is we see Satan and we see spiritual warfare. One thing we learn in Genesis chapter 3, actually, is the origin of distrust and unbelief. It's the fruit of this evil that's spread like a virus across the face of our world and, and across history. And these roots, they sprouted in a garden, and the seeds were planted by God's enemy. This is um, uh, my first point this morning is that the biblical story explains our functional, dysfunctional world. We've talked about that a bit. Here's a second observation that I'm pulling out of this text. There are spiritual beings with great power, some of whom are opposed to God and opposed to his image bearers, some of whom hate God and hate his image bearers. The scriptures set this up as a reality for you and I. We do not live in a natural world. We live in a world where there is far more going on behind the scenes than you and I ever know. Our eyes have not been opened to it. Out of the blue, in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to this new character in the story. Up until now, it's just the Lord, it's Adam, and it's Eve. But in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 1, the text says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Every time in the scriptures that we see this word crafty, it means deceit, it means cunning, um, is there to work against the plan and against the authority and against the law of God. Later, Jesus himself will call this serpent the father of lies in John chapter 8, verse 44. And this serpent, we, we don't know a lot about this serpent. He's represented in our kids' storybooks and, and often in our mind's eye and in pop culture as like a slithering snake. What we do know is that he is called a serpent and this being, this heavenly being, speaks. He has the power of language. And he speaks primarily at this moment in the story in the form of distrustful questions. That's how the serpent comes in the, in the story. The writer of Genesis, this is assumed to be Moses, the first five books of our Old Testament. I need you to hear this, church. He has written the scriptures thousands of years ago with breath taking intentionality. Your Bible, your Old Testaments, your New Testaments are not backwoods journals from some backwards people. The scriptures are written with breathtaking intentionality, and the, and, and the connection points all over the Bible is mind-blowing. I've been a student of the scriptures consistently for the last 17 years, and I'm in a season of life where I'm seeing new things led by professors in school that are guiding me deeper into what is there in the scriptures, and it is creating a kind of love for God's word in me that I can't hold back. You can see it in my face. 
and hear it in my tone. I love the Bible today more than I loved it in September when I began because of the connectivity and because of the power and because of the beauty of this story that God is writing through his people and has preserved for us now in 2022 to read and to discover. And so what we see because the scriptures are written with breathtaking intentionality is we see that there are themes in the scriptures introduced right on the front pages of Genesis that are meant to create tension in us that serves a purpose. And the purpose that this tension creates in us is to force us into the scriptures, to make us ask questions of the scriptures. It's by design that tension is here. We talked about this a little bit last week. The tension isn't always bad. Sometimes it forces us into the passage to ask questions. I feel like I'm kind of beating this drum over the last several months, but um, the Bible is, uh, is written to answer a series of questions. The authors mean for us to ask particular questions. And then there are questions that we ask of the scriptures that the Bible just isn't trying to answer. And so our responsibility as those who interpret the scriptures, those who are reading the scriptures, is to, is to try to come to an understanding of what did the original author mean for his original author, or for his original audience. There is a designed and specific meaning of every text. Sometimes our interpretations are off, and so we get it wrong, but there's only one meaning in every bit of scripture. And we know that we're starting to come to some maturity as we're reading the Bible when we can begin to distinguish between the questions the Bible is trying to answer and the questions the Bible is not trying to answer. And so as we grow in skill, we start to hone in on the main thing. Now, back to this text in Genesis 2 and 3. Adam created first. He's the one who God gave this commandment to. God specifically spoke to Adam. God says, essentially eat of the trees, but stay away from the one tree. There's one tree that I want you to stay away from. If you eat of that tree, you're going to die. This is the first mention of a curse in the scriptures, and that curse is death. The trees in this garden, they have a kind of special power. We see this every day as we eat fruits and vegetables. Trees do have a special kind of power. They keep us alive, do they not? They also produce many of the medicines that we take on a regular basis to heal our bodies, to take care of ourselves when we're unwell. So it's not that detached for these trees to have a kind of potent power to them. Only one of the trees poisons. And this poison that it introduces, it does more than just harm the body. Its corrupting effects reach down and embed into all parts of men and women. And now, because our first parents in the Garden of Eden, the fruit of this tree, every single human being who comes from them will carry this new DNA-like poison. And it's going to wreak havoc in every single person, and it's going to wreak havoc through every single person. So it's in us, and it comes out of us. Now, this serpent, he has an agenda. Uh, and the story doesn't show the serpent coming to Adam. Perhaps he did. The, the, the Bible doesn't present that to us. Instead, the serpent comes to Adam's wife, Eve. And the serpent comes with this question that is lopsided with distrust. Did God actually say you cannot eat of the fruit of this tree? 
Notice the word you. And every time the word you, Y-O-U, comes up in Genesis 3, 1 through 5, it's plural. It's not singular. He's not just attacking her. He's attacking her husband too. He's attacking them as a family. He's regarding her as the one who the commandment was given to, but the commandment was actually given to Adam as Adam was created before she was. Eve answers with this slight variation on God's actual command to her husband. She says, it'll be up on the screen, um, in the second portion on the screen. This is what she says in Genesis 3. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst or the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But here's what the command that God gave to Adam in Genesis 2, earlier in the story. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's a difference in these quotations. Eve here has inserted a condition into the command that God has not given for how they interact with the poisonous tree. What the serpent does here is he seizes this opportunity. Why? Because he recognizes that his baited hook is in. How is it in? Eve is fuzzy on the command that God gave to her husband and to her and to all who would come after. She's added something that is not there. Therefore, the serpent, he makes his move. He knows that he's got her here on her heels, on the ropes, on shaky ground. And his aim in this moment is to shift Eve's allegiance. He wants to shift her allegiance to himself and away from God. So disbelieve God and believe me. He's competing here in this moment. Now, Yahweh, the God of Israel who has created humanity, they, he and humans are in covenant relationship with one another. And there are important conditions to this covenant that this relation, their relationship is built on. God has designed and created them for himself, and he's designed and created them for each other in this, in this garden. And as the uncorrupted, created ones, God gives this command. And he says, there's a tree that you're not allowed to eat from, and this tree stands in the very middle of the garden, right alongside the tree of life, and it is an emblem, it's a symbol of their trust to one another. So in essence, God is saying here in his command, you can and you need to trust me. And I trust you in this moment to trust me. The serpent's baited hook is a question that every single one of us asks. Can I really trust him? Is he really good? Can I really rely upon him? Even for this thing, can I actually push all of the chips of my trust into his control and into his power and trust that he is going to come through for me? He asks this question of Eve, did he really say this? And as she begins to flirt with the idea here, she gapes at this tree with new eyes. Maybe God really is holding out on us. Maybe he really is withholding. Maybe he really is keeping us back from our potential. And so as Eve sees that this tree is good for, fruit, for food, as she sees it and recognizes that it's enticing to her eyes, it looks good, she's just stayed away from it to this point. 
And then as she understands through the message, the proclamation of this serpent, that it's got a kind of power within it to give me godlike insight, she takes of the fruit and she eats. And she gave some to her husband. The text says this, who was standing there with her. And he ate. And we see on and on from this point in the story, we see the record of male passivity. Do we not? Men, God has not just given you to your family to work hard and to go to work all day and to give them the toys and to give them the things and to give them the retirement packages. He has given you to your family first and foremost to steward your family before the Lord. I'm trying to see every one of you guys in the room. Our primary responsibility as men is to provide for our families. And our primary aim, the biggie on the eye chart, the target of our lives is to provide for our families spiritually to nourish them in the scriptures and to nourish our families by prayer and to walk with our families and to try to teach them by the record of our lives. And we get it wrong a lot. So by we teaching, I feel like one of the primary ways that I teach my family right now is by saying, I'm sorry. Because I'm stumbling all over myself on the regular. Whether it's like, whether it's being too aggressive in the home or whether it's being absent and passive in the home, I'm like, I'm trying to ride the middle and I'm in both ditches every day. I'm not like, this isn't hyperbolic. I'm not just trying to like humble brag. I'm, all, I'm a mess. Meredith? True. <laughs> right? We have to pay attention. This is our role. Well, I'm clumsy at it. Well, you were never good at anything that you tried the first time. And then you gave up and you never got any better. How would we know? How can you know? We can't give up, men. Women, you can hear this too and say the same thing. Be resolved to not give up. Maybe your husband remains passive. And so you are left with the burden of carrying the weight that he has left to you. I'm sorry. We're sorry. We love you. We're here for you. And you have an extended family and the people of God who will help to care for you and walk with you. And we need to know that you're struggling. The safe people in your world need to know that you're struggling. You feel alone. You feel that he's there, but he's abandoned. And maybe I and the men of this church need to have some conversations with your husbands. So I think you should out them We will love them. But we will not let the men in the room off the hook. We can't. We can't afford it. That wasn't in my notes. Holy Spirit, thank you. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened here in this moment, and they knew something that they hadn't known. They knew exposure. They knew shame. They knew fear. They knew guilt. And they immediately found a way to cover themselves. Their nakedness wasn't actually their problem. They're in paradise. They're in God's creation. The the land is not at war with them. 
They're not at war with one another. The animals are not at war with them. The temperature is not at war with them. They were not going to freeze. But they saw their nakedness in this moment and they hid themselves. What happened to their hearts and what happened to their minds, that was the tragedy. They had willfully disconnected themselves from the kingship of God and pledged their allegiance to an impersonator. There's an Elvis impersonator around town. Have you guys seen him? Yeah, I'd, I'm not going to name him or where he's at, but he might work at the post office. Um, he, he is like the kindest guy. Um, I don't know if he's actually still doing it, but it, it, like I've been in the post office before when he's got the black hair and the burns and he's got like the, he's got the voice and he's got all this stuff. He's a really kind dude, but his name's not Elvis. It's probably Jeff. He's not Elvis. He's got some of the songs, he's got some of the dance, he's got some of the garb, but he's not Elvis. Adam and Eve gave their, the authority over their lives over to an impersonator who didn't have the authority that God has. Chris Bruno, the, the author of a book called The Whole Bible in 16 Verses, he connects this story to our lived experience. He says this, how often do you hear from others or more, more likely from yourself that God's commands are designed to kill your joy? I'm preaching this anti-gospel to my own soul all the time. We regularly do not want to submit all of life to God. Why? Because so often we fear that he's going to take things away from us. He's going to disrupt the pattern of our life and we're comfortable where we have it, which which reveals actually to us that our allegiance is really to ourselves. And it's to the things that we love and very often the people that we love. And so we share the family resemblance with our first parents in the garden. God is no longer our first love. We are. And the serpent and his demons love this. They love this. They delight in this with a wicked grin. There's an enemy of our souls and of our God. And he aims to oppose God. And what he has done in humanity is, is given us um, this temptation that our first parents took. And, and because of it, the fruit of it, the result of this in our lives now is that humans function with a corrupted nature and with corrupted wills. There's a doctrine that is known as total depravity. Has anybody in the room heard of total depravity? Handful of us. Some of you are like, I don't know what that means, but it sounds kind of scary. Yeah. Um, it's a doctrine essentially that explains the strength of sin and its influence in us, hum- in us humans. Now, what is sin? Uh, Augustine, uh, an early church father in, the, in around 400 AD in Northern Africa, he defines sin as a word, something that comes out of our mouth, a deed, something that comes out of our lives, or a desire, something that is within us, that is in opposition to the eternal law of God. Anything that is opposed to God, that comes out of the mouth, out of the hands and life, or out of our hearts. So essentially sin is going against God and going against his perfect ways. An author brilliant. Eugene Peterson says that sin, the universe has been created with a grain. And so when we sin, we're going against the grain of the universe, if you work with wood. And when, when we go against the grain of the universe, we get splinters. Such a good illustration. God has created things to work in a particular way, but we're regularly saying, no, 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 I've got a better way. 
Now, total depravity, this does not mean that we are as corrupt or as depraved as we could possibly be. That's not what this doctrine means, and anybody who says that it is is misrepresenting it. What total depravity means is that every part of us, every part and particle of us is corrupted in some way because of sin. So there's no part in us that is untainted by sin. Every part of us is in some way infected. So our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our sexuality, our reason, our wills, our relational capacity— None of, us are human, none of us humans are pure or innocent. Not even, I'm sorry, mom, the little cute baby still developing in your tummy. Because as that child comes out, they're going to do things to other people that they did not learn from you. Parents, can I get an amen? Like, it's in the human heart. So there, our, our nature is corrupt, but also our wills are corrupt. So think of total depravity like this. If you are clear and sin is green, every part of you has just a greenish tint to it. It's there. You're not solid green. You're very opaque. There's a tint of it. But every part and piece is in some way corrupt. Sin affects both our desires and our choices. And so when we're estranged from God, our nature is corrupted and our wills are corrupted. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, I'm going to go through this portion quick. The, the scriptures consistently hammer this theme of sin from the very beginning of, of, of humanity, from, from our origins, from the womb, from youth. Um, and it is congruent with our human experience. Just a couple chapters forward in Genesis 6, 5. The Lord sees the wickedness of man and was great, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every, look at this emphatic note here, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A couple chapters after that, Genesis 8, 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This doesn't just mean like a middle schooler, this means way back. Psalm 58, 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. No, mommy, I didn't take it. Right? Like it's in the human heart. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, so this is in our New Testaments. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, spiritually dead, cut off from life with God. And you were by, look at this word, nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So our will, our nature is corrupted and our wills are corrupted. You want to know more about that? There's a lot more to know about that. Dive deep on your own. This leads me to this point and then a second and we'll be done. Humans functionally try to overcome sin by ourselves. So our nature is corrupt and our wills are corrupt. And what we functionally do in the everyday course of our life is we try to overcome it all by self-will, by willpower, white knuckling it. Classic storyline in cases of embezzlement. People steal from their employers. That's what embezzlement means. And they often justify their initial thefts as an unauthorized loan that they meant to pay back. Story after story after story of embezzlement starts this way. Here's what's so interesting about that. Think about this. There's a belief deep down in, this, in these scenarios, even while we're actively stealing, that we're truly a good person and we're going to do the right thing the next time we have an opportunity. And it just gets away from us. 
because we're truly not good deep down. We're about ourselves. Like this last Tuesday, um, we have some discipleship cohorts that go for nine months, and we're in the middle of, of one. Um, if you're in the year two cohort, I, I shared this with you on Tuesday morning. We're going around the table. We spend about six weeks in certain um, passages of Scripture, and then at the very end, we come together and we decide to memorize like a portion or a chunk of those Scriptures. And I'd been struggling with this homework for like three weeks. I was on vacation for a couple of those weeks. I came back, head and heart, just not in it. I'm really having a hard time getting motivated to do my work that I've um, shared with a group that I will do. And the night before um, we met on Tuesday morning, so Monday night, I I decided to just take this mulligan. I'm just not going to memorize a verse. I'm not going to do it. But we're going around the table. Everybody's going around the table and they're sharing the verses that they've chosen. And I'm like, man, I've actually got a couple of these verses locked down. Like I had forgot that I had actually memorized them. I can just recite them. This is what's going on in my heart in this moment. I can just recite them. I can save face. Nobody's ever going to know. In that moment, I'm tempted to cover my sin with a Bible verse. <laughs> like my, I'm, I'm trying to illustrate like my, my nature. Like I'm just off the rails so much, you guys. Any time... Uh, so Adam and Eve's very first response after sinning is to cover themselves. They hide their naked bodies from each other. Then as the Lord God comes close in the garden, as is his custom, they cover themselves, they scatter, they hide behind trees. Never before had they experienced the fear of being caught. This is the first time in human experience. But think about this in our own lived experiences. Anytime guilt, fear, shame like, has us in its grip, what do we try to do? We hide. We erase the internet history. Somebody walks into the room, we change the screen. We blame people. We see that in Adam and Eve. It was the woman you gave to me. Eve, it was the serpent that came to me. Nobody's taken responsibility. We posture up too, and we get aggressive, and we overcome another person because we're scared or we feel guilty. All of these are attempts to cover ourselves. And sometimes you and I, we get it done for the moment, but we're haunted. There's still something going on in us. We scrub and we scrub and we scrub, but we can't quite get our hands clean. And we can't quite get it out of our hearts. We're trying to overcome these things in our own strength and by our own power and by our own righteousness. Here's my last point. Our covenant-keeping God is the only one qualified to cover our sin and he takes the initiative to do so. You've been waiting for good news. After pronouncing the consequences to each of them for their distrust and their sin, God gave Adam and Eve something more permanent than fig leaves to cover up their guilt, their shame, their fear. Look at three. Look at Genesis 3:21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. He took the life of the innocent in order to cover the guilt of those who had sinned before him. An animal's life was taken in order to cover Adam and Eve's guilt. This warning that they would surely die would absolutely come to pass, and they would be expelled from the garden. They would be expelled from the direct presence of God, but God would not abandon the first man and woman. 
Why? Because he'd already given the serpent a promise within earshot of Adam and Eve regarding their future offspring. And this is the promise that he will, serpent, he, this offspring of the woman will bruise your head and you're just going to strike his heel. His blow to you will be fatal. Your blow will be non-fatal to him. Wait a second, didn't Jesus die? Yes, he did not stay dead. He defeated our final enemy, the curse, which is death, which came because of our disobedience. But one has stood now in our place, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has defeated and cut off the head of the serpent. Steve Hart said it in our workshop yesterday. He's still writhing around. Now we're just doing some clean up work as humanity, as we trust the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit that he has given us to continue to keep our eyes fixed on him and to trust and to trust and to trust and to trust because we distrust and we distrust. But there is good news and that he calls us home continually through the spirit of God who he has given us. There is a promise to a future redemption for all of God's image bearers that we will be delivered, not just in the moment from the power of our sin, but there's coming a day when we will be delivered from all sin completely and finally, and we will live back in that garden moment with the father, but we won't live in a garden, just a couple of us. We will live in a garden city, Revelation declares, that where we will live in harmony with the Lord Jesus Christ, our Father and the Spirit of God and one another, and no sin will be able to enter the gates of this city. My soul is relieved at that. Next week, here's what we're going to do, right? This is um, the, the heaviest moment in the whole story, but it needs to sit on us. We're going to consider in more depth the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve about their offspring. What's called the first gospel, the proto-evangelion, Genesis chapter 3.15. He's going to come and you're going to strike at his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we um, are grateful. Just in that moment, like you've been waiting for good news and I hear people say back, yes, it's sitting on us. <clears throat> Would you direct our gaze as your people to your son? Would you help us to name what is honestly there so that it can be tamed by your spirit, so that it can be overcome and overwritten by your spirit, so that we can find healing in our time of need? Would you direct our gaze to the Lord Jesus Christ, please, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.